God. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, we're looking at verses 1 through 4. Um, as we are looking at this text this morning, um, <laughs> you know, it, you know but I, I did not pick this text uh, strategically for Memorial Day weekend. We all know that on Memorial Day weekend, typically people are on the road, they're traveling, and it's thin crowds um, on, on a Sunday morning. I did not pick this text strategically because I knew it was thin crowds. I j it just happened to land this way, okay? And so I wasn't trying to run from everybody by talking about giving when nobody's here to hear it. Amen? Amen. It just happened to land that way. But we are talking about what we all love, right, and what we all hold dear is giving this morning. Can't you just feel the love in the room even as I say those words? Amen. Um, but, but nevertheless, there's a reason, I believe, why, why, why giving is, why we, why we struggle with the ideal and the thought of giving. You know, Paul, Paul and, and he saved he saved all of this. He has a bunch of random thoughts, parting shots that he's going to speak of here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we're just going to deal with one, and that is this ideal of giving. All right? And so as we close our series in 1 Corinthians, there's a bunch of random things Paul wants to leave us with. Giving is one of them. But why do we struggle with giving? Why do we struggle with giving? Well, I believe it's a couple of reasons. We struggle with giving because of greediness, greediness in the world in general, greediness in the world, greediness in the church, and thus greediness does not make the topic of giving very popular, but greediness is actually multi-angled, it's multifaceted. There's a couple of ways in which we can look at the idea of greediness. One is that there are troubling trends with the, with the, with the idea of money in leadership. There are troubling trends that we are observing with the ideal of money and leadership, and not just corporate leadership out there, but religious leadership in here. Here's what one study from the Economic Policy Institute states about the trends out there in corporate America. It says this, in 2020, the ratio of CEO to typical worker compensation was 351 to one. That is up from 307 to 1 in 2019, and it's a big increase from 21 to 1 in 1965 and 61 to 1 in 1989. So you see this steady increase of separation from worker to leader. He says from 1978 to 2020, the CEO pay based on realized compensation has grown by 1,322%. That's how much the CEO compensation has grown. In contrast, compensation for the typical worker in that same time frame has grown 18%. So 1,322% for the leads, 18% for the common worker. So leadership in the corporate world is displaying some troubling trends, but so is leadership in the religious world. There's a literal website that captures the troubling trends with money in the religious world called Preachers and Sneakers. The site captures preachers in all of their designer gear. $1,000 shoes, they'll take, a, they'll take a picture of the shoe and then they'll post it on the page along with the price of the shoe on some website. 
And so you see all these different pictures of preachers preaching, and then they'll take a picture of the shoes, and there'll be a $1,000 shoe that the preacher's preaching in, a $1,000 tennis shoe that he's preaching in, a $1,000 sweatshirt that they're preaching in, $400 T-shirts that they're preaching in, all in the name of Jesus. I see some of y'all have already pulled out your phones, and you're trying to take a picture of mine right now so you can check and see what, I, what, I, what I'm rocking with online. The term... The term Pulpit pimping became a popular slang term in the, light, in the late 1990s, in the early 2000s, because of this infusion of celebrity and profit into the pulpit with preachers exploiting working class flocks for their own gain, living in multi-million dollar houses, driving multi-hundred thousand dollar car, cars, all in the name of Jesus. So obviously, ears are perked whenever a preacher starts to talk about money because of how much exploitation is taking place concerning money in the church and outside of the church. Does that make sense? However, there is another angle to our greed that makes this passage really unpopular, and that is our own collective trends with money. Not just the leadership's trends but all of our trends. Since 1975, our house size, average house size has doubled. Even when you adjust for inflation, the cost that we are willing to pay for a car has increased significantly. The cost that we are willing to spend on food has increased significantly. Our taste buds have gotten more expensive. Our demands for technological comfort has increased. Now, it was just good enough a few years ago to have one TV in the house, right? Now we got to have nine, and they all have to be 50 inches. And even though we have more and more discretionary income in our budgets, our giving has stayed collectively at the same percentage, which is roughly 2% as a country. Meaning that we get money to do more things we typically, we typically had not been able to do, but we don't see that opportunity reflecting itself in charity and giving as you would expect it to with the increase. So these kind of passages don't get a lot of love because of the lack of trust in our leaders, but they also don't get a lot of love because of the subtle work of greed happening in our own hearts that hears God's words, that it is better to give than to receive, and responds back and whispers with the antithesis of these words, no, Lord, it's better to receive than to give. So Paul jumps into this very touchy subject, just like any skilled minister would do. He moves swiftly from a powerful truth in chapter 15, the resurrection, to an urgent call to action in light of that powerful truth. In other words, he says in the latter part of chapter 15, abound in, a good, in, in work, abound in good work in the Lord. And then he moves out of that call to abound to a very specific way to demonstrate that abounding by giving. Now, I want to explore a couple of thoughts in our reflections on this morning as we think about Paul's, uh, Paul's words concerning giving, and that is his proclamation towards giving, the purpose behind giving, the process of giving, the place of giving, and the power of giving. Proclamation, 
purpose, process, power, and place. First proclamation. Like so much of Paul's writings, this proclamation doesn't begin in the obvious chapter or the obvious place in chapter 16, verse 1, but it flows out of chapter 15. As we, as we talked about on last week, we've dealt with chapter 15 a couple of weeks talking about the resurrection. And it's as if I can hear Paul closing out this beautiful passage on the resurrection in verse 58 where he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And me saying, yes, amen, Paul, my work is not in vain I will abound in good work, Paul. What would you have me to do, Paul? And then Paul says, I'm so glad you asked. Now, let's talk about your weekly giving. <laughs> so that's, that's what happens, right? Verse 58 leads us into chapter 16, verse 1. And in chapter 16, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. In other words, our remembrance of Jesus' resurrection and our anticipation of our own resurrection should fortify our commitment to producing good works that include generosity. Here's one quick way to think about this. When we aren't as concerned for the preservation for this life, we aren't so reluctant to sacrifice what we have from this life. When we don't have habits of giving, it's often, oftentimes, not all the time, but many times it is due to us living for this life, saving for this life, enjoying this life, paying for this life. The resurrection is a reminder that this life is not the only life you inherit. Paul is saying, remember, because of the resurrection, we don't have to grieve as those who don't have any hope, but we also don't have to live as those who don't have any hope. So out of a full unpacking of the resurrection, Paul isn't shy about proclaiming that an ethic of liberal giving should flow out of our newfound life in Jesus and our anticipated new bodies from Jesus. Basically, Paul is saying, give in light of what God has done and what God is promising to do. Live selflessly in light of what God has done and what God is promising to do. So from this proclamation, let's take a minute to focus on purpose. Now, to help us get a full picture of this passage, I want to look at a few other passages in Scripture within the New Testament that actually give us clues as to what Paul has in mind in this call to give to the Jerusalem church. He's calling the Corinthian church to give to the Jerusalem church, but the question is why? And we get our answer in chapter 15 of Romans, verses 25 through 26. He says this, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. And so we hear 
The first purpose in Paul's call to give, care for the poor. Care for the poor. The purpose of the Jerusalem collection is not some kind of fickle collection to support a luxurious and large church budget. But Paul's goal, rather, in traveling from church to church and collecting for the Jerusalem church was to care for a struggling church with struggling saints. We don't have firm reasons for Jerusalem's poverty um, in the text. We know that Jerusalem faced a number of famines. We see that even in Acts. We know that Jerusalem wasn't an extremely wealthy place in the world to start with anyway. And we also know that the Jerusalem church was extremely ostracized given the strong Judaic ties of the community. And so because of those Judaic ties, this, this Christian, this Christian uh, perception, well, not Christian perception, but this Christian position that Jesus Christ was the Messiah was rejected for the most part. And with that rejection was not just an unfriendliness, but an also uh, re re refusal to support them in any sort of way. And so they saw a lack of resources in that regard as well. But remember, at the heart of Paul's ministry is concern for the poor. When Paul shared his uh, testimony with the apostles in Jerusalem concerning what the Lord was doing in the Gentile world, they blessed him. And the only thing that they asked that he would do is that he would not forget the poor, to which Paul said, I was eager to do. So we see this eagerness in him going from church to church to church, asking for support for the people in Jerusalem. So Paul's concern for the poor was at the heart of his call to generosity, but Paul had other purposes in mind as well for this giving. We look at chapter 15 of Romans Verse 27, I want to read this. It says, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. They were pleased to do what? They were pleased to support the giving to support the poor in Jerusalem. And then Paul says, they were eager to do it or pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be service to them in material blessings. So Paul also believes the Gentile churches should leap at the opportunity to support the Jerusalem church because the blessing of the gospel flows from Jerusalem, meaning that the law of God flowed out of Israel. The scriptures flowed out of Israel. The, the Messiah flows out of Israel and out of Judah. The church flows out of Israel and out of Judah. These are the spiritual blessings that we all have reaped from the Jerusalem church. So it only makes sense that everyone would be eager to participate in blessing them materially. Does that make sense? This one-time offering was in some way intended as uh, to be a sign of a unified church despite the differences in the church's traditions and customs. Because there were times where there were obvious tensions in the church in Jerusalem with the other churches all across the world that were being planted. Because Jerusalem was a lot more likely to hold to the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial customs, the, the, the Jerusalem church was a lot more likely to hold to the Old Testament customs than their Gentile counterparts. But here Paul is providing a path to unity. 
Nothing shows the solidarity of the church quite like when we give of our own substance and our own resources to aid and serve another in their time of need. Somehow in these moments when we serve one another, the second and the third layer disagreements find their proper place, which is below the unity and oneness of the saints. And so this is not just simply a sign of support, but this is a demonstration of solidarity between the churches. Now, here's another purpose in giving that is not directly tied to the Jerusalem gift, but still very important to highlight. And we find it back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Look at verses 5 through 11. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I did not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as am I. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. The generosity that's highlighted in verses 5 through 11 is not necessarily tied to the generosity that's highlighted in verses 1 through 4. But nevertheless, it's important that we understand that there is generosity being highlighted in those, in those verses. In order for Paul to continue his evangelistic journey through the ancient world, he is going to need the support of the Corinthian saints. And so he asks for it in chapter 16, verses 5 through 11. You see, the work of the gospel is advanced through the generosity of those who have reaped already from it. You see generosity first through hospitality here. Paul says when he passes through Macedonia, he expects to stay with them. Maybe a short period, maybe an extended period. He says maybe even through winter. But the, point of be, but the point being, the church is going to facilitate this opportunity for ministry, for rest, and for recovery by opening their homes with hospitality. We're doing that this coming week, right, as we have missionaries that are coming through the city. We're opening our doors to the church and we are providing food and we want to provide support to them. Why? Because that's the church's role. It's to create opportunities when we can do that. Does that make sense? And not just a once in a lifetime opportunity, but as many opportunities as we possibly can facilitate. That's the church's role to create opportunities like that. That's our role, not just as a collective church, but as individual believers to be hospitable and open opportunities for resting and refreshment through the, and, and, and continual advancement of the gospel through our hospitality. But Paul expects this, notice, he expects this not only, not only of himself or not only for himself, but he also expects this for his young understudy, Timothy. Verse 10 and 11, it says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Put him at ease among you. How do you do that? Hospitality, giving him the same resources, making available to him the same things that you are making available to me. Why? Because he is doing the work of the Lord also. 
allow him to concentrate on that work by demonstrating hospitality towards him so he doesn't have to worry about where he's going to lay his head or how he's going to make his next meal. Provide that so that he can concentrate on going forward into the go- uh, in, in other places advancing the gospel. This shouldn't be at all controversial. Those who arrive to provide us spiritual food should, without question, not have to worry themselves with physical food when they come to labor among us and with us. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We've talked about this a few weeks ago as we've navigated through 1 Corinthians over these last couple of months. But in chapter 9, verse 9, he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman shall plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul says the oxen, the, 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 the animals that are working for us, don't we expect them as they are working to reap from the work? He says, well, if we expect that of animals, how much more so the laborers of the gospel, the Timothys that are coming through, the Pauls that are coming through, the Fuller Center bike missionaries that are coming through, how much more so? Notice another thing about Paul's call for generosity. It is not just connected to thinking, uh, taking care of the ministers who are laboring among you when they are with you. Look again in verse 6. He says this, And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. And so Paul expects the Corinthians to not only be prepared to give in support of the poor, and he not only expects the Corinthians to provide a place and space and and posture of relief for the ministers who labor amongst them, but he also expects the Corinthians to provide support in getting him from one missionary place to another missionary place. And he expects the same thing for Timothy. Verse 11, let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Help him on his way. Generosity through hospitality, but also generosity through resourcing as we provide goods and means for people to continue to advance the gospel in this world. Now, trust me, I absolutely know saints that this can be exploited. I know that this can be exploited. And you can have people telling you to resource, resource them as they go and proclaim the gospel in Honolulu for six months and, 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 and resource them as they go and prepare to build a private jet or get by a private jet because that's the only way that they could go and take the gospel to the, uh, to the uh, outer parts of the world. I understand that this can be exploited. I know that. But don't let the examples of exploitation harden our hearts and move us towards disobedience. You understand that? Because that can happen as well. We can get so exhausted from the exploitation that we harden our hearts towards what God is clearly commanding us to do, which is to support the advancement of the gospel with our pockets, our wallets, and our purses. 
call of the church of Jesus Christ is not only to care for the poor, but it is to facilitate the advancement of the gospel by aiding those who labor in the gospel to ensure that they and other people are in other places, to ensure rather that they can go to other people in other places who will in turn receive the benefit of the gospel. Now let's talk a little bit about process. Verse 1, it says, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. There's a couple of things about process here that should stand out to you. One is that giving is a common process. Paul is not necessarily calling on the Corinthians to do something that is above and beyond all the other churches that he visits. He sees the church as one, and thus he calls upon the church as one, as a collective body, to support the church back at Jerusalem and in other places. He makes the same call to the church to support his ministers and provide hospitality when they are among them and resources when they need to go elsewhere. He does that for every single church, and that's why he says, hey, listen, this is a practice that I'm encouraging you to do as I encourage the other churches in Galatia to do. No one church carries the full burden of this call. We all partake in this work to support the least of these and facilitate the advancement of kingdom work. So giving is a common practice as process. But also another part of the process that we see in this text is that giving is sacrificial, but it is not out of exploitation. Notice there are four words that are very important that Paul speaks in those four, first four verses. As he may prosper. As he may prosper. Give sacrificially, not out of exploitation. Paul is clear here that we give in proportion to what we have. This is most likely not just limited, by the way, to the difference between rich people and poor people. But you could even probably point to good weeks and bad weeks because, of the, because a lot of the jobs wouldn't have consistent weekly pay in this context. Some weeks would have been better than others. And so Paul says, each week give in proportion. Give in proportion to how the Lord is providing for you. If you don't have a lot of it, then that means you're not being called to give up a lot of it. However, be sure to properly weigh what is a lot and what is not. Does that make sense? For some of us, $100 could be a lot. For some of us, $50 could be a lot. For some of us, $20 could be a lot. But for others, $20 isn't that much. $50 isn't that much. $100 isn't that much. So with these four simple words, as he may prosper, Paul is holding the line between sacrificial and exploita uh, exploitative. What if I don't have the money, some people may say. Paul would say, as he or she may prosper. In other words, give sacrificially, but not to the point where you can no longer attend to your own needs. What if I have more money? Paul would say, as he or she may prosper. 
Don't swallow it all up in, in frivolities and trivial goods, but be sacrificial and give above and beyond to those in need and to advance the kingdom work. Does that make sense? And, of course, when we talk about that, it, it, we, have to, we have to explore our own hearts in that, right? We can say, man, I wish I could give. I mean, you just don't understand how much I wish I could give, preacher. But, man, you know, these Jordans ain't going to pay for themselves, right? <laughs> you know? These Xbox games ain't going to pay for themselves, you know. So I'm sorry. It's all I got left, you know. I mean, so we have, to, we have to put this in the right context and search our hearts as it relates to what is our living, right? What is the condition of our living? And, and, we, and, and, and are we giving as we are prospering? Now, notice Paul even gives us protection from exploitation in verse 3. He says, and when I arrive, look there, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And so Paul is not trying to dupe anybody here, right? He says, hey, you can appoint trusted agents, so to speak, to give this money to, and they can be the deliverers of the money. I'm not concerned about whether I get any of this. I'm concerned about whether or not we are doing the right things and giving as we have prospered. And so Paul says, accredit people by letter. Give, send the letter with them that says, hey, the church, they are representing the church in its interests when they bring this money. And we gave them this amount of money. So as they reach their, their point of destination, they can ensure that everything is, 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 um, is above board. Amen? But then not only do we give in terms of common process and we give sacrificially, but we also give as an act of worship. Notice that Paul encourages the saints to give on the first day of the week. You say, what's significant about that? Well, it's not that Paul is giving them a designated time in their own home to put money away. They can put money away in their piggy banks anytime they want to. What Paul is doing is he is introducing to us giving as an act of worship. Because the giving on the first day of the week was when the church gathered. You say, why did the church gather on the first rather than the last day of the week? Like, this, you know, why, why, why did they gather on Sunday? Well, because Sunday was when Jesus rose from the grave. And so that resurrection transformed literally how the church worshiped to the point where they began to gather on the first day of the week. And when they gather on the first day of the week, Paul would say, it's that time that you bring those offerings and, those, and, 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 the, and that money. You bring it then for collection in the church, and as they collect and then, and then they get prepared to send that money back to Jerusalem to support the work of uh, the, support the work of caring for the poor, then you will send your trusted agents, your accredited folks by letter to do so. You see this from the very, around the second century, you see it actually documented by, uh, by, by one of the uh, church uh, theologians and historians, Justin Martyr. Early in the second century, he writes a book called The First Apology. And in that book, The First Apology, you see it where it's first referenced, this ideal of worship and scripture reading and preaching and teaching and giving for the collection of the poor, for the advancement of the kingdom, for the support of the ministers. You see all of that in 
in that early second century where you see it articulated in his work, The First Apology. And so giving becomes worship, just like every other offering that you see in the Old Testament when they bring of their substance, they bring of their cattle, they bring of their goods, they bring of their vegetation, and they offer it back unto God as worship. Now these finances and resources and money become an act of worship as well. Does that make sense? And that's why you give it on the first Sunday, I mean, on the first day of the week. Now, real quickly as we close, I want to turn you to two, uh, two thoughts. The first thought is the power of giving, and then the last thought is the place of giving. First, the power of giving. So I mentioned that there were there several places in which we get more details as to why uh, Paul is calling the church to give to Jerusalem. One such place was Romans chapter 15, which we read earlier. Another such place is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul gives us more context as to why he wants us to give. Look at chapter 9 with me. If you don't mind, turn your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 through 15. Chapter 9, verses 10 through 15. He says this, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce the thanksgiving to God. Through us will produce the thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying as you collect these resources and these goods for distribution to those that are in need, you are not only just performing the act of supporting those that are in need, but you are contributing to the overflow of thanksgiving to God. In other words, as they receive these goods, they are going to offer what? thanksgiving to God for what you have contributed. So you have the opportunity to participate in what God is doing that produces thanksgiving in others. Does that, does that make sense? That's part of the power of giving. You know, I won't give you the actual event where this took place, but I'll just give you, I'll just give you an example of how this works. And I'm not giving you the event because I don't want to try to expose anyone um, in the process. But we had an outreach event. City Light had an outreach event. City Light has had many outreach events where something like this has happened. It was one particular outreach event where we had cash gifts. And in the midst of this cash gift, there was an individual who was present, doesn't go to our church. Um, I've never seen them again, in fact. But in the process, they received one of those cash gifts as they were out there and they were participating in the outreach event that we had. And they received the cash gift, and my wife happened to be nearby when they received it. 
And she later told me, and of course, we, we would never, like I said, tell anybody or tell names or anything like that. But she later told me that that individual, as they received that cash gift, they walked, walked away receiving that cash gift and they were whispering to themselves in celebration to God, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. Something that seemed very small and insignificant to many of us that were giving those gifts meant everything to the person that was receiving it. And we had an opportunity to participate in the overflow of thanksgiving back to God. Does that make sense? There are so many, so many stories that I can tell you of that. I'll tell you like that, of this little church providing goods to other people and out of that participation or out of that generosity, we participate in someone saying, thanks be to God for this good gift. Thanks be to God for this good gift. Some of those people we see, some of those people probably go to other churches, some of those people might not go to church, but nevertheless, you have the opportunity to participate in the overflow of thanksgiving to God. That is the power of giving. Does that make sense? One last thing, the place of giving. Turn one chapter over to chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 10. Paul says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Again, talking about collecting and contributing to the poor, all right? He says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul says, I'm not telling you how much to give. Not, not, not telling you to contribute to this as a command. But I'm, I'm telling you to, to contribute towards this as an opportunity. Because, see, in your giving lies an opportunity to demonstrate not only in desire, but in action that your love for the saints is genuine. In your giving there's an opportunity to not just say, I love the saints, but there's an opportunity to show your love for the saints. And then he says, what? Because remember how Jesus showed his love for us. How did Jesus show his love for us? I really, really, really love y'all. No, that's not how Jesus showed his love for us. Jesus showed his love for us by coming down from heaven and in, his in, and in his incarnation, walking the perfect life that none of us could walk. And then in, out of that perfect life, being slain on a rugged tree on our behalf, taking the sin burden, taking the sin penalty upon his own shoulder. He gave his life to demonstrate the genuineness of his love. And so where does the motivation of giving come from? Where does the place the source of our giving springs from. It springs out of a deep desire or a deep remembrance of what Christ has done for me. 
He didn't just express love with desire or express love with words, but that love moved him to the action of giving. And so Paul says, this is an opportunity for you to demonstrate the genuineness of love through giving by out of your genuineness of love, imitating your Savior by giving of yourself. So that's where the motivation for giving comes from ultimately. Yes, we love to help people. We love to serve people. Yes, we love to see that people will overflow in thanksgiving and give thanksgiving back to God through our giving. And yes, we would love to advance the work of the gospel and, and support the missionary work that's happening all around us. But most importantly, we give out of, out of a reflection of our Savior because of how much he's given to us in dying for us that each and every single one of us that trust him with our lives and turn from our own sin will have eternal life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you so much and we give you all the thanks and praise and glory and honor.